Hey everyone, this is Chad Arms, pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about the church in Acts. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you to do us a favor. If you have benefited from listening to these sermons, if you found value in listening to this podcast, then it would be awesome if you would consider leaving us a rating and or review. If you'll do that, it will help our sermons be heard by more people, and we think that that is super important. Like I said, if you find these sermons to be important for you, help somebody else hear them by leaving us a rating or review. Hey, again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. So I uh, am gluten-free, I eat gluten-free, and I've done it for a long time. Like, you all know what that term means, but I've done it for so long that in the early days, people are like, what's, what's gluten? What is that? And then we'd have this whole explanation everywhere we'd eat. It was crazy. Uh, and I remember, uh, like, when I first went gluten-free, I had some family that was gluten-free, and they, like... I was headed to San Francisco for some classes and they made me like a whole pack to take with me because I had no idea how to eat gluten-free. And, and I remember in those, those really early days, there would be like, you know, a, an occasional time where Bryn, my wife, or somebody else would make me some kind of gluten-free dessert. And so like you go, you know, you go, a long time without a chocolate chip cookie and then somebody makes you, you know, let's say a dozen chocolate chip cookies and they hand them to you. And I remember how frustrating it was in the early days. It's not bad anymore. I could buy whatever I want gluten-free now. But like people, you have 12 cookies. You've been waiting a year and a half for these cookies. And then somebody says, can I have one? I literally hate you, you know, like, I, and, and so you're, you know, they're sitting there eating a salad and you're like, I have these cookies, but I really don't want to share a cookie with you. And, and when, when resources are tight or even when they're not sharing is, is a hard thing to do, right? And uh, I don't know if you've had kids, if you have a kid, if you have grandkids, if you've been around a kid, it is, it is innate within us to not share the things that we have. Like, I don't have to ever tell either of my children, even Hudson, he's 11 months old, like, hey, you should never want to share with anybody, right? Like, they just don't want to share. You give them a cookie and they're like, eh, looking at the other kids, finding them, going to a corner. Hazel will be at library time, this playtime that's on Mondays. I'll be with her and Hudson too, but Hazel like we'll get one of the in-demand toys, like the doctor suit or uh, the shopping cart with the baby. And, and she's no longer playing with other kids. She's just walking around making sure that she doesn't have to share it with anybody. Hiding in a corner, like ah, I got the shopping cart losers. Uh, and this is, this is how we are naturally wired. And in the passage of scripture we're going to look at today, we see that the first church, the earliest church, they, they had this incredible capacity to share with one another. And the question is, is why, right? Because when I look around uh, at our church, and our church is better than the norm, 
uh, at least the norm that I've experienced. But when I look around just churches in general, I don't see a lot of people in the American kind of Christian church culture that are just willing to share with their brothers and sisters, fellow Christians. It's just natural for them. It, it just happens. They're like, well, I have a little bit of extra money this month. Do you want it? You know, like that's, we've lost that. But that seems, and you'll see this, to be how the early church was. And so the question that I want to answer this morning and the question that, that is in the heart of this passage, the middle of this passage, I think is, What's the difference? What, what's the difference between that first church, that earliest church, and, and us now? I mean, why did they so naturally share? It's not a normal human thing. We'll see that in the ways they shared, it wasn't a normal cultural thing. And, and they did it anyway. And so what's the, what's the difference? And so in Acts 4, 32 is where we're gonna start. And just as a reminder, this passage of scripture follows, and I expect all of you to remember this, but this follows the passage of scripture that we looked at last week. I'm sure that you had in your head, oh, we did Acts 24, 23 through 31. I'm sure you were all thinking that. And now we come to the very next verse. And, and so if you didn't hear last week's, go back and listen. But the idea behind last week's sermon is that these people prayed very differently than, than we prayed. And as a response to those prayers, God poured out his Holy Spirit upon that earliest church. And so Luke now turns and gives us another summary statement. If you remember from the first sermon in this series, the summary statements in the book of Acts are really important. Uh, they, they put the best foot forward of the church. They say this is like the highest quality, the greatest things that the church did, but not unrealistic. Just this is the best foot forward for the church. But what they really accomplish is that they go out and, the, and they, for us, they say, Look, despite the good and the bad, the church triumphed because of the power of God. Luke's writing this book to a guy named Theophilus. He's written the book of Luke for this same guy. Said, here's everything that I learned and, and summarized for you about the person of Jesus. But then Jesus went up to heaven and here's what happened after he left. Here is the movement continued. Here's what it looked like in this first church. This is what happened afterwards. And the summary statements for Theophilus and as an extension for us say, here's the absolute best of the best that was taking place in those churches. God and his church triumphed despite human error, despite all of the problems and in part because of all the good things they were doing. And so here's, here's the, how this summary statement begins in Acts 4.32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. All the believers is a way of translating something that means more literally the great number and it's the 8,000-ish Christians to this point. Now I only point that out that it's 8,000 people because it makes, it makes that statement more profound, right? They were all one in heart and mind. And I think it's easy for us to read through the book of Acts and to say, well, easy for them, you know, there weren't that many people. There was one church. I mean, not that big a deal, but 8,000 people. Have you ever tried to get 8,000 people to get along? I'm sure you haven't, right? But that's a difficult thing to do. And over and above just getting along, he's saying there was such incredible unity that they could be described as more literally one heart and one soul. There is incredible unity in this early church. Now, 
you might think, well, there's the answer to the, to the question. Like, how come they so willingly shared with each other? We'll see their sharing in just a minute. It's because of their unity, because they were so unified, because they, they were one heart and soul. Like they thought alike and they felt alike and they were for each other and they were on each other's team. And when one person suffered, they all suffered together. And when one, one person rejoiced, they all rejoiced together. That's the answer. But what we'll see in this passage is that that also is, is a symptom, a positive symptom. That also is an overflow of the real reason that these people shared. And so Luke says, look, if, if I could give you Theophilus, if I could give you who sit here today and read my, my work, like if I could put the, the church's best foot forward, like all throughout the church, if you could describe it, not every single person getting along, but if you could describe the general feel, the general flavor of, of that early church, <coughs> they were deeply, deeply connected. They didn't just lack disunity, they were deeply, deeply connected connected and, and here's here's kind of what happened out of that here's how that played out in verses uh, in verse 32 this is how total unity plays out no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had. Now, context again is really important because we get a picture of this in verses 36 and 37. I'm not going to read it, but Luke points to a very specific example. And the specific example is this guy named Barnabas who becomes a really important figure in the rest of Acts and in Paul's writings. Uh, he becomes an important figure because he is one of the key first missionaries. One of the guys that travels around saying, hey, here's the deal. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus got out of the grave. It's incredible. You should follow Jesus. Make him your Lord and Savior. And so Barnabas Barnabas becomes one of the key Christian figures in the early church. And so Luke introduces him as an example of how no one claimed any of their possessions as their own, but shared everything. And what it tells us about him is that he sold a piece of property and he brought the property money and gave it to the disciples, the apostles, the early Christian leaders so that they could distribute it to the people who had need. In Acts 4, 34 and 35, I'm skipping a verse I know because verse 33 gives us the answer to the question why. But in verses 34 and 35, we see this further explained that there was no needy person among them for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, obviously, there being no needy person needs to be read within the context, right? Like there were needy people and that's why people were selling their own property to share. And, and so then there was no needy people and then more needy people would come and then they'd sell something and they'd share. Now let's just for a second say like, does that sound anything like the modern American church culture? Do you know anybody who's been like, wow, I have an extra computer and I know that that person is struggling to pay their bills, so I'm gonna sell it. That, that's, that's a big difference, right? Like, I feel like we're all a little uncomfortable right now even talking about it. It makes me a little uncomfortable because my daughter is her father's child, you know? Like, I don't wanna share. I don't wanna do that. 
And, and as Luke describes what the early church is like, it's like, here's what happened. When there was needs, people sold stuff to meet those needs in other people. That's crazy. Now, a couple of things are worth really pointing out. First, this was voluntary. And we talked about that last week. It's really hard to read these passages about the early church and to disassociate them from, from politics, governing authorities, right? And so when we read this, it's really hard uh, to not either say, well, this supports my, my socialistic ideas or to say, well, that sounds like socialism and we shouldn't do it. You know, like you just, either way, it's hard to disassociate this from from governing authorities of countries. But this isn't saying everybody needs to give everything and we'll equally distribute it. And it's not a political idea, it's a church idea. Your politics should be separate from this idea in many ways. This is an idea of people saying, I see a need and I want to meet the need, which is even more profound in a lot of ways, right? Than the apostles, the early Christian leaders saying, hey guys, if you wanna follow Jesus, here's what you need to do. You need to sell everything you own. We'll just make everything equal. We'll put it all together. We'll live in a communal style. That'll be great. It's not a terrible idea. I mentioned that last week. I think that there's some communal churches in the world that do incredible things. We've seen that in the history of the church. It's not a bad thing, but that's not what this is saying. It's saying that people voluntarily just felt such an incredible desire to help their brothers and sisters, their, their fellow Christians that were in need, that they were like, well, I have extra land. I'll sell it. Wow, that's stunning, right? And, and, then, and then this other thing, again, and it goes right along the lines, this isn't something that happened just like at conversion, this was people actually doing it as needs arose, just kind of the same idea, but, but it's voluntary and they're not just selling everything and, and contributing to this big pot, they're selling it as they see a need. So that's the setup to say this next thing. And the next thing is this, when Luke writes this, Luke seems to be writing it with a, he is, with a historical perspective. He says used to. They used to sell their stuff and provide for those who were in need. And he's writing later, right? He's telling this historical story of the early church. It's recent history for Luke, but he's writing it with this historical perspective. And he's saying, this is, this is how it was. But it's pretty clear and every smart person that writes about the Bible pretty much is going to say, Luke is not just saying this is how it used to be. He's saying this is how it used to be and this is how it ought to be again. That fits pretty well for us today, doesn't it? It's humbling, it's a little scary. Luke is not writing this saying, we got this nailed down, this is how it is. He's saying, this is how it used to be and this is how it should be again. Luke is writing in a both prescriptive and descriptive way and that is to say he's prescribing something that we should do while he's describing something that just happened. It's crazy. Ben Witherington III said, no one called private or personal, personal anything that belonged to him. Everything was in common. And then Ben Witherington III says, as he, as he tries to give application to this, no, notice this, no believer should have need. No believer should have need. 
Now I would take exception in, in one area with Ben Witherington III because Paul is pretty clear in his letters to the early church that if a person is unwilling to work, then that person should go hungry. That's pretty much how Paul says it. And so if a person is unwilling to strive to meet their own needs, then the church has no more obligation to meet those needs. But if a, ch- if a person is trying to meet their needs and they can't, then there should be no person that calls themselves a Christian, that lives for Jesus, that has need. And that should especially and specifically be true within a local body of believers, a church, Creekside Bible Church or any other church. Now, what we see, this is pretty unbelievable, but, but this fits in some ways with Jewish culture. Deuteronomy 15, God's given his law to the Jewish people and he describes this whole scenario where, where when needy people are in the land, God is going to not bless everybody, but he's gonna bless other people in order that those people who are blessed financially speaking can then take care of those who are struggling financially. Now, that's like, I don't, I mean, that's something for the Jewish people and in their law, but just put that in your head for a second and think about that if you're a person with money especially. Like maybe, just maybe, God has given you that extra money, uh, not so that you can have extra special stuff, but so that you can take care of other people. But we'll leave that further for another day because uh, the principle is there for the Jewish people. When you have, you share. And then in, in the Greek culture, Aristotle, and I love this, he pointed out that this was the ideal for friendships. Aristotle, Greek philosopher, you've probably heard of him. He pointed out that this was the ideal for friendships, that they would be of one mind and that they would share. They would share with each other. And so there's, there's some connection there, but you see that in Jewish circles, it wasn't happening. And in Greco-Roman circles, the Roman world at the time, it only happened between equals in the socioeconomic classes. And there was a reason for this. There was a reason. And the reason is this. When you share with somebody in your socioeconomic class, you then have at least the thought that they will reciprocate that sharing in the future, right? When you share with a friend in need, when you go help them move, when you cut them a check because they're a little behind, you know, hey, they have about the same job as me. I could fall into the same situation and maybe eventually they'll be able to help me too. And the Greeks, the Romans, buddy, friend, guy that makes about the same wage as me, I'm here to share with you because I know that you can share with me. You come over, eat my food because I'm gonna come over and eat your food too. But when the Christian movement arises, Jesus ascends into heaven and the first church starts. They were so different because unlike the Jews, they actually lived out what God had called them to do. And unlike the Romans, they were sharing between different classes. They were sharing with no promise, in fact, uh, very unlikely, with the very unlikely idea that they would ever get anything this side of heaven in return for that sharing. So they stood out. In fact, into the second century, this was still happening to some degree, and the world around them really looked down on Christians. They looked down on us in our earliest days because they're like, why are you sharing? That's a stupid model. Like, what are you doing? That seems a little socialistic, you know? I mean, what are you doing? And it wasn't seen as a good thing, but it's just the way it was for Christians all the way into the second century. 
And so, look, I mean, we can't pass. I mean, oh, by the way, a famine strikes Jerusalem. And so there's this incredible sharing in Jerusalem where the early church springs up. And then the famine uh, spreads. And, and we see in Paul's letters, he writes about how churches outside of Jerusalem are actually sharing with the church in Jerusalem. And so we see, I mean, can you imagine that? Like us in Wilsonville, we hear of a need of a church in, I don't know, somewhere else in, in rural eastern Oregon. We're like, they have a need. And so we'll just all pitch in and contribute so that those people can have their needs met. Like that's incredible that now it's going, you know, out of sight, out of mind, right? But like now it's saying, I heard about your need. They're saying, I heard about your need and we'll share with you too. This is a stunning picture of the early church and what Luke is saying is this is, this is the way it should be. We should be people who are willing to give of our blessings, our abundance to give, to give to the people that we know have needs. And, and, and I know, I really do know, trust me, I know, um, that this is, this is complicated, right? And it's partly complicated because we have a government that meets many of those needs. And so let me just, let's put the questions out there. Like, like you got a, a Christian friend who is on food stamps and it seems that their food budget is bigger than your food budget and, and they run out of those food stamps because they spend unwisely and then they come to you and say, well, I need some money. How do you handle that? I don't know. I, I don't know. And, and we could go down a whole list of questions just like that. But, but what I, I just hope and, and where we get it so wrong is that we go, well, it's complicated and so I won't do it. I'm not gonna think like that. I'm not gonna act like that. I'm not gonna be like that because it's complicated. But I think for us who are Americans with systems in place, right, that it is complicated but it should be, it's complicated, but how should I be doing it? It's complicated, but what does it look like for me to share? What does it look like for me to help people in need? What does it look like for me to make sure that there's no needy person amongst us? And the answers to those questions, I, I believe, are nuanced. They're gonna vary between situation to situation. But what Luke is describing, again, is the general attitude, the general feel, the general flavor, the general style of the early church. And the general style and flavor was to be so unified that they did whatever they had to do to take care of other people that were part of the church. And so, so uh, before we look at why, right, before we answer that big question of why, Let's just, I mean, my goal, like point number one is don't say it's complicated, I won't do it. Ask yourself this, like it's complicated, so how do I live this out? What does this look like for me? But the attitude, especially if you're a person who has the means, the attitude should be one that says, I want to do this, I just need to figure out how best to do it. That's what I think needs to change in the modern American church. But I do understand it is complicated given our government and given the fact, this fact right here, that like these people that, that in the early church, if you were a Christian and the synagogue kicked you out, you no longer had any support whatsoever. You no longer had the support of your family because you got the boot, right? Because you're a Christian, you're not following the real God. And, and so I get, I get, I'm gonna say one more time that it's complicated, but don't say it's complicated, I won't do it. Say it's complicated, how should I be living this out? And so here's, here's, here's what we read in verse 33. 
This is the answer, like why? What compelled them to do this? What have we lost? Why are we not unified in those ways? Why do I not feel so strongly about helping other people? Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Two things here. First, what they're preaching, the resurrection, and they're doing that with great power. And I'm not gonna spend very long on this, but if you've been around you know, uh, much at all, you know that one of the things I think uh, is wrong with, with how we talk about Christianity today, how, we've, how we communicate what we believe as Christians, what we talk about on Sunday mornings, is that we've, we really, we don't talk about the resurrection. Uh, and I've been as guilty of, of that as anybody else. Like, I need to make sure people know that Jesus died for them. But the early church, the Christian leaders, the pastors, the people as they ministered to their friends, as they witnessed and testified to the truth of Jesus to their friends, they knew everybody agreed Jesus died. There was no question about that. Now the why Jesus died, people probably didn't understand or agree with or know. Jesus died for your sins. But what people really communicated, what the apostles wanted everybody to know, what Christianity really hinged on was not a question of whether Jesus died. It was a question of whether Jesus came back to life. And I think that, that we don't have power, as it's described here, because we don't pray. And we talked a lot about that last week. We don't pray at least for boldness and for power and for God's spirit. And we pray for things that will make us feel better. But partly because we, we don't pray. But I, I think we don't understand God's power and we underestimate God's power because we've made Christianity a religion of death and not a religion of new life, of resurrection, of rebirth. And so for these early Christians, there's this, there's this power in what they believe. Because if God can bring somebody back from the dead, there is nothing that God cannot do. And so what is selling a piece of property? What's selling a piece of property when God can bring somebody back from the dead? God's gonna meet my needs. I don't need that piece of property. I mean, God, God has resurrected Jesus. So of course he's gonna meet my little puny needs. And I, and I really believe that, that while every Christian believes Jesus got out of the grave, if we would think about it more and think about how much that means for our lives, like that Jesus sits and rules and reigns in heaven and that Jesus is, uh, is acting as a, as a mediator between us and, and the Father and that Jesus is on our side and that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit who now is alive and at work in the midst of us. I mean, if we really thought about how Jesus got out of the grave and all that that truly means, I think that that in part changes the way we live out our Christianity the way that we do church. Christians are, are like... Joyless whiners, pushovers, scared in our society today. Like, I, and I read this in a book, I stole this, I think from a book called Organic Church that I read many years ago. But like Jesus says, the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. They'll never 
beat his church, right? And, and the way that we've come to like picture that is like we're literally up against the gates with shields. Like, like please don't, don't beat us, you know, don't kill us, don't be mean to us. But the early church took that like, we're gonna go conquer the world for Jesus because he got out of the grave. And so the, I think the first part, and it's less than the second thing I'm gonna say, but they were living in light of the resurrection and everything that they did was centered around Jesus getting out of the grave. And so sharing is just a natural extension of that incredible power. But the other part, and it goes with Jesus' death perhaps more, this grace thing. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Let's think about what we believe as Christians just for a second. I mean, here's what we believe. If you're not a Christian, maybe you don't know this, but you're about to. We believe that, that each and every one of us, every single person that's here, every person around the world, has been disobedient to God. And maybe you wouldn't call it that or think about it in those terms, but you've done things that God does not want you to do. And, and usually we have this conscience inside of us that kind of tells us, like, you know you've done things that you felt bad about later. And those things are probably, not always, but probably connected to God not wanting you to do them. It's his grace that gave you that conscience in the first place. And, and so God looked down at us and said, my relationship with them is broken. They'll never be able to spend eternity with me. They're hopeless. They're stuck and enslaved to their sin. There's no way out. And so God, as he looked down, he decided that he would step out of the riches of heaven and he would be born to a poor couple named Mary and Joseph. I mean, born literally in a barn, right? Born in a barn, and then he lived, sinlessly he lived, but with all of the problems and the struggles that you face. I have an old friend whose dad died unexpectedly this week. And I've seen through Facebook, she lives far away, just how much she's struggling with that. Not a Christian person, has no words to really express, I don't think, what she's feeling, the hopelessness. They, I think they live together, but at least they live nearby, so they saw each other on a regular basis. Her whole life has changed. Jesus' dad probably died while he was still a young man, and he dealt with that for you, left the riches of heaven in order to come down and live on this earth because he saw you in your sin. And then Jesus, at the near the end of his life really he decided to walk around basically as a homeless person the known world in order to tell people that the kingdom of God was upon them and that they needed to repent and he started to teach these 12 men that we call the disciples what he was going to do so that when he died and rose again they could declare hey he told us about this we knew this was coming and then at the end of that three years of wandering around as a, a poor man telling the world the truth of God. He was mercilessly and unlawfully killed. He died a brutal physical death. They tortured him. They tortured him some more. They beat him up. They mocked him. And then they stuck nails in his wrists and his ankles. 
But that's not even the bad part of the death because we believe as Christians that as Jesus hung on that cross and dealt with all that he dealt with physically, it was a spiritual death as much as it was, in fact, more than it was a physical death because the sins of the world were laid upon him and in every way he was experiencing the hell that we deserved. And so as Jesus hung on the cross, God turned, the Father in heaven turned his face away from his son and Jesus suffered hell, the hell that you deserved. And that's grace. He died, he was placed in a tomb and then he got out of the grave and it was all for our sins. And and these people who lived you know, some 50 to 100 days later, right? Some of them watched him get beat and tortured and nailed to a cross. And so when it says that, that they were filled with the grace of God, think about it. They're just like, he did that for me. He did that for me. I love how the NASB and even more the ESV translations of the Bible translate this. The NASB says abundant grace was upon them all. The ESV says great grace was upon them all. The people shared everything they had because they were filled with the incredible grace of God. When we are filled with grace, everything changes. But I don't think we are. And, and what's so difficult about grace is that the further, I believe, the further away we get from the moment when we first experienced that grace, the harder it is to be filled with it. I've told you many times, if you've been around about when I was 17 and it was the first, I, I felt like I needed to tell somebody else, a person, the things I had done to wrong them. So I had this little confession and I went home and just so powerfully, not audibly, but deep in my soul, God said, you didn't sin against them, you sinned against me. And, and I had this moment where I cried for hours on my bedroom floor because God's Grace filled me so incredibly. For the first time, I felt the weight of all that I had done wrong and how incredible it was that Jesus would die for that. But standing here years later, double my life later, I have to draw upon that moment. I have to draw upon and I have to work to to think about God's grace and I have to return to the gospels and I have to take communion seriously on Sundays and turn to my, my key verses about Jesus' death, Isaiah 53 and Matthew 27 for me, these passages that speak to me and, and emotionally connect with me, frankly, because I need to be filled with God's grace if I'm going to offer anything good to the world. And, and what we've done in the modern American church is we've turned our eyes towards just getting a little better at life. 
I want to improve my life. And so I go to church on Sundays and they preach a sermon that makes me a little better. And what we've lost is turning our eyes and just centering them on Jesus and his incredible sacrifice that allowed for us to experience ridiculously amazing grace, grace that doesn't even really make sense. Like, what does it mean that the God of the universe would die for me? What does that even mean? But it's true. We don't experience incredible spiritual loving unity, unity that causes us to share because we are not filled with God's grace. We don't share with others because God's grace is not great in us. It's always great, but we've made light of it. And I believe that the, that the, the church will change that the American church can find the revival it so desperately needs. If we stop making church about us, if we stop making Christianity, frankly, about us, and we turn our attention again to where it all began, and that's a cross, where Jesus allowed for his love and his blood to be poured out so that we might experience and, and have God's incredible grace because I, I believe like if you viewed your possessions in light of that incredible grace that amazing grace like it would be vastly different right and maybe a question for today is if you did view your possessions everything you owned in, in view in light of God's ridiculously amazing grace what would you do differently how would your finances be different would you sell something you own to give something to somebody else maybe Maybe. God's grace is great. But you need to make God's grace great in you. The greatness of God's grace will never change. It will never end. But you need to make God's grace great in you. And I think that if we do, then the sharing idea won't be such a scary thing. You're saying what? I think it will be a natural thing. You see, what doesn't necessarily come out in the language is that sharing is just an overflow of grace, right? I mean, think about it. You look at people and you say, well, you have need because you, you're financially stupid you know I mean like look at all the dumb decisions you make and if you just would have worked a little harder and moved up the corporate ladder and if you would have lived more like me then you wouldn't be in this mess in the first place grace is saying yeah it's your fault but I'm gonna make up the difference and that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He didn't look down and go, yeah, you made your bed, now sleep in it, you idiots. Like if you just would have listened to me and obeyed me and if Adam and Eve wouldn't have eaten the fruit and the rest of you wouldn't have followed suit, didn't mean to rhyme that. I've been doing that like crazy in sermons lately. I didn't mean to do that. But if, if the rest of you wouldn't have done the same thing and sinned against me, then you wouldn't have been going to hell. 
So figure it out yourselves. Instead, he said, yeah, you did it. But my grace can overcome it. When God's grace is great within us, we'll naturally share. And so whatever you gotta do, whatever you have to do, make God's grace great within you. So we did this last week and we're gonna do it at least through this series. Um, but instead of me praying and communion following directly after, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you this opportunity to pray today. And uh, I want you to, I'm just asking this morning that, that what you do in this moment, this kind of corporate prayer moment that, that we have, what I'd ask that you would do is that you would sit with God and you'd ask him not to make his grace better because it's already great, but to help you make his grace greater in you. And as you do that, say, just ask, what do I need to do differently to make a bigger deal out of your grace? What do I need to do differently to feel how incredible that grace is? And maybe some of you have not accepted Jesus. Maybe you say, God, maybe I need to give my life to you. I don't know. And maybe some of you, you're like in a place right now where you're like, I'm making a big deal out of God's grace. Pray that our church would make a big deal out of God's grace. But use this time to say, God, I know your grace is great, but help me to make your grace great. So would you pray and then Brandon will lead you in prayer in a minute.